Welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Today I bring you Jerry Mintz, who has been around the alternative education scene forever, and every time I speak with him, he has a new fascinating story for me about a school in some far-flung country that he helped start, or some entire social movement that he kicked off by organizing a conference somewhere. Uh, he's great, and I'll have a lot more to say about Jerry, and, and Jerry and I are going to be interviewing each other on this episode, and so you can also find it on the Arrow podcast. I recorded this when I was in New Zealand, and Jerry actually got the, the raw recording, so his voice sounds a lot better than mine. Apologies for the low quality. And I am speaking at Jerry's conference, the Arrow Conference, this summer in Portland, Oregon, June 26th through the 30th. I'll be one of the keynote speakers, and I'd love to see you there. I'm also doing a workshop uh, on young professionals in self-directed education, which is for people in their 20s and 30s trying to make a full-time living in the field, the world of self-directed learning centers or alternative schools or homeschooling, unschooling, et cetera. So if you're interested in either one of those or you just want to meet a bunch of cool people from the world of alternative education, come to the Aero Conference. Sign up now. Now, without further ado, Jerry Mintz is the founder of Aero, the Alternative Education Resource Organization. And Jerry has helped open... Lots and lots of schools, more than 50 across the world as a consultant. And through his online school starters course, Jerry was uh, in the public and the independent alternative school scene as a principal and teacher for 17 years. He was the first executive director of the National Coalition of Alternative Community Schools and a founding member of IDEC, the International Democratic Education Conference. If that's not enough, he's also the author of Schools Over, Turning Points, and No Homework in Recess All Day. Thanks, Jerry. I'm glad we can talk. Well, okay. Nice to be with you, Blake. Um, what do you want to talk about today? Oh, I thought you were going to introduce me. What well, is I can introduce you because, you see, uh, we're going to interview each other today, which is going to be an interesting <laughs> experiment. And uh, I, I want to introduce Blake Bowles, who is actually... <laughs> going to be a keynoter at the Aero Conference this year. And Blake has been one of the most important young leaders in this field. Uh, he's already done an awful lot of stuff for being a pretty young guy. And uh, he, is, he has been bringing a lot of students on tours in places around the world. He just finished a speaking tour around the country and uh, lots of other stuff, but uh, so so we're very pleased to have Blake on our podcast, and probably maybe even more pleased than he is to have me on his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're both pleased. Okay, okay, I get the first question, Jerry. So okay. uh, for those who have never heard of Arrow, like what's it all about? What's your elevator pitch? Well, what we have in common uh with all of the different alternatives, about 600 members, is that they are learner-centered, that they believe that children and people are natural learners, uh, as opposed to curriculum-driven, and as opposed to believing that children are naturally lazy and need to be forced to learn. So it's a very different paradigm, a very different orientation, it's one that has, keeps on popping up through all the last few centuries because, well, I think it's true. And then, of course, the next question is, well, Jen, how did it happen that we got off that track and we got to this other approach if it doesn't seem to be accurate? And that's a whole other big question. So um, that, that is, uh, that's what they have in common. Okay, so to you, alternative means learner-centered and starting with the assumption that kids want to grow and learn and do stuff and are not just lazy brats who need to be uh, you know, bludgeoned into any sort of productive activity. And so that's, that's a very large umbrella. That can encompass many different types of schools or even public school approaches. Well, that, that's kind of, in a way, the point. Uh, I don't think that we're going to change the education system in general unless we have a lot of people under this umbrella. And the fact is that Arrow's um, mission 
is the education revolution to make learner-centered education available to students, children, everywhere. Mm. And Jerry, I, I was reading through the history of Arrow on your website, which is kind of a fascinating tale going back into the late 80s when you you were invited to go speak in, in post-Soviet uh, uh, Russia for like the first, to help start the first democratic schools there. Is that right? Well, uh, actually, there were already democratic schools there. What happened is that uh, uh, an associate uh, who was involved with Arrow in the early years, we're talking 1991, uh, came up, uh, discovered a flyer uh, which announced the first new schools uh, festival of the Soviet Union. And he said, well, he didn't want to go, but he thought I should go and he could help fund it. <laughs> and I thought, this is crazy. Go to Russia. Yeah. Go to Russia. Yeah, that does sound crazy. Go to Soviet Russia? Are you kidding? And then, <laughs> but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know, it is what we are in business to do. It's what It's our mission. So we need to kind of find out What's going on there? And at that point, there was just no communication between East and West. And so uh, I wound up uh, flying to England and then taking the ferry and taking the East-West Express, a train from Belgium to Moscow. And that was an adventure in itself. <laughs> um, and... Uh, for example, when you get to the border of Belarus uh, and Poland, the size of the tracks changed because Stalin was paranoid about being attacked by train. So he changed the huh. si size of the tracks. And so you think, well, then what are they going to do? Because I was on a train called the East-West Express. You think, well, you know, you're probably going to have to change trains at that point? No, that's not what happened. They actually jack the whole train up and change all the wheels. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That's clearly <laughs> the right thing to do in that situation. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what happened. And, and we, I, I tried to videotape it and I got attacked in the process <laughs> of uh, trying to do that. And, um, and then finally made it to, uh, to Moscow. And I met a guy by the name of Alexander Tubelsky, who met our train. And Tubelsky had started something called the School of Self-Determination, a democratic school in inner-city Moscow, a democratic public school in inner-city Moscow that he had started before, you know, it, while it was still the Soviet Union, can, can you imagine the courage it took? And mm. he was just an amazing guy. He, he, was, um, he was a former actor. And when he would speak in Russian, uh, kids who were there who, who, who didn't even speak Russian would just sit there enthralled <laughs> just, just by his cadence. <laughs> mm. So he was an amazing guy. So you've been doing this for a long time, as evidenced by that story. And and I'm I'm curious if you can briefly tell me, like, what brought you out of working in public schools and in in independent alternative schools, and and made you want to start this organization and and be this outside actor instead of being someone working directly in schools. Like, what? Why did you leave? Well, I really wasn't in public school very long. I just wanted to see if it was possible to make the changes, make changes in public schools. But my orientation goes all the way back to when my grandfather used to sit down with me when I was uh, six, seven years old, uh, when we would visit him in, in Boston, uh, Massachusetts. And he would say, well, so what do you want to learn? And... It could be science, it could be uh, literature, it could be history. And we talked about amazing things back then that I was interested in. I knew what the ego, the id, and the superego were back then. And, 
you know, we talked about uh, religion and we talked about theories of humor and the causes of the Second World War. People thought he was absolutely nuts speaking to a young kid like this, but I remember the things we talked about. And to me, this was the proper way to, to learn. And when I realized that school didn't work this way, so this was early on, I just knew that was wrong. Hmm. Huh. So you have this like family member. It's kind of like uh, Rousseau in, in Emily, right? It's like you had this, this private tutor who would, who would enlighten you and answer all your questions. And, and that was your inspiration. Like, like school should be this personalized. It should be this rich. And then when you saw the reality, it was just like totally disheartening. Yeah, there, there's no question that was the thing that, may, that oriented me that direction. And, that, uh, and then later on, even when I was in high school, for example, I was dissatisfied with the way our supposedly terrific top-tier public uh, school system was operating because it was still the old paradigm. Uh, and uh, organized all my friends into a group that would meet. And they were kind of the elite of the school. I wasn't because uh, I didn't care about grades or anything like that. But they were all people who went on to Harvard and all kind, Yale and Princeton and all kinds of you know Ivy League top schools. And we would get together uh, a couple of times a week sometimes or more and talk about whatever we wanted to talk about. There was no adult leading it. Uh, and so that, I realized in retrospect, was probably my first school, the first school I started. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think, I, I know somewhere I actually still have video, uh, audios, reel-to-reel tapes of our discussions. <laughs> um, and so, so that, uh, you know, I, I, I had, a, you know, that was my attitude early on, you know. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question, then I'll hand it over to you, Jerry. Um, you seem to have a special affinity for democratic schools, ones that really embrace, you know, full democracy and and have, you know, rules for voting. Maybe they follow Robert's, Robert's rules of order. Maybe it's another democratic decision-making system. But, you know, where did that interest and, and that passion come from? It, it seems like you love democratic schools more than any others. Well, yes. Um, it just seemed uh, logical to me, and it, and it kind of is something that's in my bones in the sense that, yes, I did hear about Summerhill back in the 60s, but I was already oriented that way, and it already started democratic recreation centers, for example. Mm. Uh, so that was my instinct as to how, and even when I was working with my friends, we would decide things by consensus or democ- democratically, and so on, and so so that uh, that really was a lot of it. I did actually, when I was at Goddard College, uh, wound up wind up um, discovering that the, a school based on Summerhill mm. uh, that was in. Uh, upstate New York called Lewis Wadhams School between the towns of Lewis and Wadhams, New York. And and actually Zoe, who is still the head of Summerhill in England, was actually, actually helped start that school and was here with, uh, uh, with um, Herb, um, okay, I just blocked it out, with, with, with the photographer who actually had done a book called uh, Summerhill, A Loving World, uh, and come ba- came back and started this school, and uh, uh, Herb Snitzer. And they, um, so then I, they, I think it was in their second year, probably, and I went there while well, I was still at Goddard as a kind of an intern in 1964 or something like that. And, um, uh, and so that, I learned much more about Summerhill. And so because I learned about Summerhill from them, I think some of the things that kind of carried on even through to the schools that we helped to start come really from Summerhill. Mm. And by the way, it's over 100 now. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I still love that book, Mm. Uh, A.S. Neal. It's timeless. Yep. 
All right, your turn, Jerry. Well, uh, you know, I, I talked a little bit about your background, and I know that you just came back from a tour around the country. Can you tell uh, tell us a little bit about your tour, how it came about, and some of the things that happened on your tour? Sure. I was looking for a chance to share some new material and research that I've been putting together. And so I have a lot of friends and contacts at small alternative schools. So a lot of um, liberated learners centers on the East Coast, um, some ALCs, Agile Learning Centers, and then a lot of kind of vaguely unassociated democratic free schools. And, um, And so I just emailed people and I said, hey, I'm doing this speaking tour, you know, completely self-organized. You know, will you pay me a little bit of money to to come and talk and, and host me? And it was great. I think I had about 25 different stops um, and broke it up into spring and fall. It was a lot of driving, too much driving, Jerry. And <laughs> um, yeah, what I saw kind of confirmed what I already believe, which is that there's this great, growing, incredible diversity of alternative schools or or centers. I don't like to use the word school. And some of them focus on younger kids. Some of them are focused on teenagers. Um, You know, a lot of them are struggling to meet their enrollment goals. It's just because the overall movement is growing. It doesn't change the fact that a lot of these schools remain like fundamentally small businesses or small not-for-profits that are struggling to pay their staff and to, to get enough kids in the door. Well, I think maybe uh, the reason why some of them are struggling is because you're, if you're not part of the public school system, you're competing with free. Yeah, right. That's a, that's hard competition. Uh, yeah, I visited Clamara School in Ann Arbor, which I'd known about for a long time, mostly thanks to uh, Grace's Grace Llewellyn's Teenage Liberation Handbook, where she talks about their off-campus program a lot. And and I visited there, and and I met. Uh, Pat and Chandra Montgomery, and, and they and told I think, me. I think Pat and Chandra are both going to be at the Aero Conference this year. Yeah, and I had them on my podcast, and it was incredible. Pat has such good stories. Um, and they said that when they started Clonlara long ago, they were the only alternative school in uh, Ann Arbor. And now there's like five alternative schools, all within a short radius in Ann Arbor. And so. And so maybe that's another reason is that alternative education has taken off to the extent that there are many types of alternatives. And, and, you know, I think you and I, when we talk about alternatives, we're talking about the pretty radical out there alternatives, like full on democratic free schools. And, and there's all these other alternatives now, which are slightly less alternative or the ones that are publicly funded. Well, you know, there, I believe that Ann Arbor has a public alternative. Uh, yeah, open school or something like that, which I think has was maybe inspired by Clonlara. Uh, do you know anything about it? No, no. Did, have to ask them. On your tour, did you get a chance to see any public alternatives? No, I I didn't. There were so many places that I wanted to see that I just didn't have time to fit in, and so uh, no, I didn't. But th- that brings me to one of my questions for you, Jerry, which is like, what are your favorite examples of public alternatives nowadays? In North America, or and I guess internationally also. I kind of agree with what some people say that until we institutionalize the idea of democratic education and they can become part of the public school system that's well known and it's a choice for people, maybe these changes won't take place. There's no way to know if that's true, but it's a it's one it's it, it is possible. Um, now, the interesting thing is uh, there is one place in the world where that has happened, Ooh. and that is Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Israel, uh, there are over 25 public alternative democratic schools, and uh, Yaakov Hecht started uh, the first one, uh, the Democratic School of Hadera, which is still going and as somebody, we're now between 500 and 800 students. Wow, and, incredible. And most of these schools are pretty large, two or 300 or more. So that Yaakov says that not only does Israel have a lot of 
uh, Democrat, public democratic schools, but maybe the largest total number as opposed to just percent of yeah. students uh, in democratic schools. Um, and so everybody in Israel knows what a democratic school is and knows that it's a choice that they have. It's a small country, so that no matter where they are, they can probably find one to go to. So that's one place where it's been sort of institutionalized. And so it's important to know that is possible, you know, that it can be done. Now, uh, there are some other really great public alternatives, and Canada has one of the best ones, which is called Windsor House, and that is in Vancouver, British Columbia, and it's quite radical. It's been going for something like 40 years, uh, and uh, the daughter of the woman who started, I think, is the principal of it now. Uh, Helen Hughes uh, started it, and... Um, then in the United States, you've got some pretty good public alternatives. Uh, in Colorado, uh, there is the De Jefferson County Open School, which is pretty radical. And yeah, they're not very democratic, but, but definitely experiential. Is that right? Yeah, they have a parliament, uh, make some decisions there, uh, and uh, the kids get a lot of freedom. Uh, it's K to 12. Um, and in upstate New York, you've got another public democratic school, uh, which is actually now named after Dave Lehman, who was the principal there for 25 years, the uh, Lehman Alternative Community School. And that's quite good. And then uh, there is something else called the Met Schools. And these, these were started uh, out of Providence, Rhode Island, and now have, I think, oh, I don't know how many there are, they're all over the country. They tend to be small. They are democratic. They are based on internship. The kids do internships mostly. Uh, and so, and they are probably one of the most radical examples of public democratic schools. But it's hard to do that in the United States because we've had this no child left behind common core madness uh, that's a throwback to the old system that really never worked, but it's all that the bureaucrats knew about. So when they knew things weren't working well, that's all they knew to do. And so it's too bad because we're still trying to overcome all that. And isn't No Child Left Behind and all the kind of federally mandated standardized tests, isn't that all fundamentally optional, but it's tied to federal funding and that's a big enough chunk of most schools' budgets that they don't want to say no to it. Yeah, I think you can say it's optional. It's hardly optional when your when you your finances depend a lot on it. Sure. Um, and so yes, and and uh, you know it's evolved and changed, but it's still now they it's got it keeps on coming up with some new names. I'll tell you an interesting story. Uh, when I went to the Education Writers Association Association meeting shortly after. Uh, Barack Obama was elected, and the person that he chose to be his education commissioner, Arne Duncan, was a speaker. And I uh, and I confronted him on on this, and I said, uh, you know, I re represent alternative schools around the world, and we feel like this no child left behind thing is really in the way of real innovation and real uh, orientation toward learner-centered approach. Uh, are you going to scrap it? Are you going to, you know, are you going to get rid of it? And he said, well, you know, uh, it's, uh, we, we're talking about it. It, it really, it really um, <laughs> has a toxic name We'll probably change the name. <laughs> very, very political answer. Can Great. you imagine? Just what and you so, wanted to hear. And so what they did do is they changed the name to Race to the Top, and they kept it the same. And so <laughs> this is, so through various Republican and Democratic administrations, they've still tended to keep the same thing. And of course, one of the questions you have to ask is, why? <laughs> 
Yeah, so you've been thinking about this question for a long time, Jerry. Like, I'm sure you have many responses to it, but what's your what's your first response to it? Well, I think that the system tends to be self-replicating. So you've got people in the system that have taught for years, and they're comfortable with the way they've been teaching and don't really have any experience with another approach that is a democratic approach or a learner. You know, they, ta- they talk about personalized learning and learner-centered, but they mostly don't know what that means. And so the system just keeps on wanting. It reminds me of an analogy I talk about, like the system is a big organic thing. It's sort of like a balloon. And whenever you push in on the balloon, by someone who's really doing something innovative, uh, that can look like a change. But as soon as they're out of the picture, it immediately finds its original shape like they were never there. Mm. (laughs) So what do you think of people in the alternative education world who call for the dismantling of public schools, you know, breaking them up, uh, you know, somehow totally privatizing them? How does that sit with you? Um, to me, it's not very relevant one way or another. Um, the, um, I think that, um, I'm not, I, I, I don't know what would get that system to change as it is currently constituted. So to me, the only way that I know how to make change is one brick at a time, one school at a time to kind of plant seeds and show people in various communities what the alternative is and what can work. And hopefully people will take note of this and there'll be some changes. I'm not necessarily optimistic optimistic that that's going to actually cause a revolutionary change, but I don't really know how else to do it because when I see people in the public school system, we will try and support them if they're trying to make changes within that system, you never know something could really work, you know, and, but we're skeptical. Hmm. Yeah. Cause you've been doing this for long enough now that I imagine any grand optimism you had in earlier decades has now been replaced with, with what, like, what did you think might've happened by now? And do you feel, you know, disappointed? Do you feel resigned? I was sure that the whole no child left behind thing was going to be gone years ago, uh, the same way the back to basics movement just died off. Uh, but it didn't. You know, t- too many politicians were kind of invested in it one way or another. And so, I mean, this is not my realm. It's not my. So, yes, I'm disappointed that I haven't seen those changes take place. Um, and, uh, but I think that it's other factors that cause massive changes to take place. Those may still be afoot. For example, the internet. Uh, I don't think that people quite understand what a dramatic effect in the long run the internet is going to have toward education. Uh, for example, uh, every kid now knows that if they want to know the answer to something, they're not going to bother going into class, patiently waiting, raising their hands and asking the teacher. They're going to go to the internet and have the answer in two seconds. Uh, yeah, they're not even going to go to their local library. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is, I don't think this can be underestimated because a, as a whole generation grows up and understands the real way they're going to get answers to things, And as more and more people actually sort of educate themselves that way, and as there are more and more homeschoolers, there are now 2 million, uh, come up in the country, uh, you know, using those as some of their resources. I think those factors are going to be very powerful. And then you can even look at how colleges are likely to change. Of course, you've got now people who can just get whole degrees offer practically nothing on the internet. Uh, you've got MOOCs. Uh, now you've got people who can get credit through this kind of stuff. Yeah, but but MOOCs are I I would consider those a, a failed kind of utopian uh, promise. 
I think that they they had their chance and but uh, but on the other hand, just about just about every college and university does have ways people can take their courses online. Yeah, that's good. That's good. But I don't think it's going to replace college degrees and the credentialing and signaling that comes through college degrees. But you can get the credentialing. You can get the credentialing now. A lot of it online, and uh, and, and and so. I think that, first of all, because of the expense of colleges and universities, and it's just outpacing inflation and everything else, that more and more, I think they're going to face, they colleges very soon are going to face a real identity crisis. It's already happening. And I become more pessimistic on that one, Jerry. I I definitely thought the same way maybe uh, six years ago. And, and I no longer feel that that's true. I think colleges, as we know them, are going to stick around for a long time. Uh, I think the brand name power of elite colleges is not going anywhere. There's a, a few cool examples like Minerva University, which is trying to become the first new Ivy League in you know, 150 years, which is completely online. And, and they have a relatively small cohort of students, and they shift between different capital cities in different countries every semester. Um, like that's pretty cool, but but the MOOC thing has only turned into a very limited number of credential degrees that you can actually get fully online that are really just related to tech stuff. Well, to me, to me, one of the best examples of what's possible, I think, is what Goddard College does, where they have their low residency. Now, those and I graduated from Goddard, and those of us who graduated from Goddard. Uh, were furious when Goddard advanced, uh, uh, abandoned its whole program for oh, what, what, uh, what program? What? What program did they abandon? That well, they, a, with they, they know they don't have full time students on campus all year anymore. Uh, and and they what they did is they went to the low residency program, which up to that point was just part of what they did. And so what people do is they go there for eight days at a time meet their other teachers, meet their students, design independent studies, and then they go home and do them. And, and so to me, this is better than a pure online program, you see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, completely. And so I think that's one of the most important and innovative things that's, that's go- the examples of what the future may look like. But why were you furious about them getting rid of their, their full-time residential well, that's why we did. It's what we were used to. We thought nothing could replace that. But a lot of people, when the changes take place, now I think they were maybe ahead of the curve. And if you if you listen to the very recent headlines, for example, it looks like Hampshire College is going to have to close or merge with someone to survive. Yeah. They can't afford to keep going anymore. Antioch did close down. Yep, And then, that's right. their, then their alumni got together and reopened it and at first they made it free for people to go there just to build it back up again but now they're trying to make the transition where people will have to pay tuition and i think they might run into the same thing that paradigm might be over yeah it definitely seems like alternatives at the k through 12 level are doing better than alternatives in the higher education realm nowadays yeah oh well you know so i think you're going to see big changes like that and I think that you'll see public schools trying to use some of these ideas. Uh, unfortunately, it just seems that like when they do, for example, they will just park a kid in front of a computer and be happy <laughs> that that's going to yeah. happen. So that saves them a lot of money. Yeah. So, so, so I don't know, but I think you will see a lot of changes happening because of computers and the Internet. Jerry, I've only had a few chances to speak outside the U.S., uh, like in Argentina and the U.K. and Spain, but uh, you've like been part of the, the international scene for a long time. You've gone to a lot of these IDEC conferences, and, and, and you, were, you helped start the first one. And so I'm, I'm curious, outside of Israel, which sounds like it's you know, got this special public democratic education program, like, is the international scene, is it, is it getting better in, in terms of more learner-centered options? Is it stagnant? Is it, is it getting worse? No, I think it, there are some amazing things happening in various places, some of them really unexpected. 
Uh, and just as an example of that, you know, we have our online school starters course every year, and that's one of the ways we've helped to start all those co- all those schools. And we were very surprised, for example, at one point when a bunch of our enrollees were from Arab countries. Um, and, you know, so we just, we see this is actually happening all over. Uh, Ukraine is now developing a lot of alternatives, and they will be hosting the next uh, air, the next IDEC, the next International Democratic Education Conference, which is going to be in August, uh, both in, in Kiev and, and Vinitsa. Uh, the part of Vinitsa is hosted by the Stork Family School that I actually met at the first New Schools Festival of the Soviet Union. By the way, <laughs> on, on, my way on my way home from that, well, first of all, after we had the, uh, the, that, that first New Schools Festival in 1991, we had a meeting in Yeltsin's White House in, in, in uh, Moscow. And uh, then I had trouble getting the train back to England, and I had to get help from their office, and they have actually dispatched a car so that we could be first on the waiting list, and then I managed to get on the train. While I was on the train going back to England, where I had been standing the day before at the White House uh, uh, where Yeltsin was, they had the coup. And that's where Yeltsin uh, stared down the tank, and that was the end of the Soviet Union. Holy guacamole. <laughs> that's, that's a great story. <laughs> and nevertheless, after that, I did go back to Russia several times to participate in some really fantastic alternative education conferences they had there. So where is alternative education, learner-centered education, where is it going downhill? Well, it's, well I don't know about, well, I don't know if, really if it's going downhill anywhere. I think it is building up. And for, I'll give you one example. We had the IDEC uh, in 2005 in Germany. At that point, not only was homeschool illegal, which it still is, but democratic schools were also illegal. Mm. And so people were literally fleeing the country to avoid being arrested and having their kids taken away at that time when we had the IDEC there. But on the last day of the IDEC, we, we had it in a prestigious university in Germany. And we had people like Zoe coming from Summerhill, you know, all kinds of speakers who were involved with democratic education. One of them is a guy who had been a school inspector in England, uh, Derry Hannum. Uh, and so that had a very profound effect. Seven years later, when we had the IDEC in England, a third of the participants were from democratic schools in mm-hmm. Germany. Mm-hmm. In other words, it had become totally legitimized. And now there are many democratic schools in Germany. So, so this has, is an example of the kind of change that's possible. One of our school starters came to our, our, a couple of Aero conferences and uh, then did the school starters course. And she went back to Poland, where she came from. Now there are maybe 50 democratic schools in Poland. Wow. So, That's awesome. So these are some of the changes that are taking place because parents are more and more looking for these kinds of things. They know this is right. And anybody who spent any time with a three, four, five, or six-year-old understands that children are natural learners. Well, I, I listened to your TEDx talk and read some of your articles to brush up for this interview, Jerry, and, and I've heard you use this line a lot, and and you say also that chil- that brain science proves that children are n- natural learners, and and I haven't seen that. Like, can you point me to like a book or a person or a researcher or a paper that actually proves that? Because th- this is the kind of stuff that I feel can can potentially weaken a movement like ours, um, making like broad, broad claims like that. So what, what do you, what, what's your basis for saying that, that children are natural learners and everyone is, uh, based on science? Well, I, I think that, that, uh, if you, again, 
everyone's observation, if they if they know a, a, a kid, they'd realize that they're, they're question-asking machines, you know. Uh, but yeah, but kids go through developmental stages also. Like well, that's yeah. you know, Montessori's genius was identifying some some clear stages. And well, yeah, and I and I I said earlier that you know, in terms of the system self perpetuating, if you force kids to learn things they're not interested in using uh, some uh, uh, terms that are well known uh, in research, that natural ability to learn will get extinguished. And that it tends to happen over six or seven years. And that's why it becomes self-fulfilling in the sense that after that number amount of time, uh, kids do need to be motivated. They do lose their natural ability to learn. But I think, you know, I mean, there are a number of people that have done research on this kind of thing. Wilder Penfield did. and uh, this. The, but I, I'm not an expert on that. Uh, somebody who really has extensively research this uh, is Chris Macaliano, who's actually been working on a book about it for years. And so, oh, so, awesome. he, so he'd be a good person to talk to because he has a lot of that stuff at his fingertips. That's not uh, an area that I can just quote off the top of my head. Okay. So I'll get Chris onto my podcast and ask him that question. Yeah. So I want to ask you uh, something about something that you've done a lot, and that is travel with students. Uh, why do you think that's a good thing to do, and what uh, and what kind of experiences have you had with that? Yeah, I think that when you are in a foreign country, especially one with a different language, and you are not following some prescripted tourist itinerary, you're you're kind of there to be an independent traveler to figure things out, to see what's going on, whether by yourself or with friends. Uh, I think that's always a situation where you have to be a self-directed learner. And that is, is an experience that many people have had and they can relate to. And it's something that a lot of people just want for its own sake. And a lot of young people want to travel. You know, they always have and they always will. And so I found that travel can be this, this great medium for, for kind of gaining the skills or expressing the principles behind self-directed learning because it's it's a natural conduit for it as long as you don't overstructure it and as long as you don't make it about just like consuming tourist experiences so i'm recording from new zealand right now and i'm close to the adventure capital of new zealand which is queenstown and you can go there and you can just sign up for bungee jumping and skydiving and jet boating and all these different expensive adventure activities and then go on a pub crawl in the evening if you still have any energy left in you and and so that's the kind of travel that i think is not really about self-directed learning um I had a couple of formative travel experiences when I was younger. I got to live in Chile as a, a host family student for a month when I was 14, when I had very little Spanish under my belt. Um, I got to travel around Western Europe with some high school buddies when I was 19. And I think most importantly, when I was 24, um, I had gotten kind of frustrated working in outdoor education. And I was looking for some sort of escape. And so I bought a one-way ticket to Ecuador and spent three months traveling around South America, initially by myself. And then I recruited some friends to come join me. And that was just a, such an empowering, eye-opening experience. It's actually where I started writing the, the first notes for my first book um, on long-distance buses. I was writing them out by hand. And... Um, and so that was so positive that I, I eventually realized that I wanted to share these kinds of experiences with young people and that my background as an outdoor educator and working in summer camps, working at not back to school camp um, was pretty good preparation for doing that. What, 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 what is not back to school camp? What is not back to school camp? Jerry Mintz, you're asking me what is not back to school camp. It is only the preeminent gathering place for teenage unschoolers in the United States. Um, so started by Grace Llewellyn in the mid nineties. And they have sessions that are one or two weeks long each um, uh, end of summer, you know, the back to school time period in Oregon and Vermont. And so a couple years out of university, I started working for not back to school camp um, in their Oregon sessions in 2006. And that's where I got my first exposure to real life teenagers who don't go to school, some of whom never went to school. Um, you know, a lot of them are homeschoolers or unschoolers. Some of them go to alternative schools 
you know, a lot of them go in and out of these different situations. And that's, you know, before they were all just figments of my my imagination because I just read a bunch of books about alternative so, education. So you, you didn't homeschool yourself? No, no. I was California public school all the way. And and so, yeah, I was studying astronomy and physics, and, and then I decided to switch and design my own major in alternative education, largely inspired by reading, uh, you know, John Taylor Gatto, Grace Llewellyn, Dan Greenberg, A.S. Neal, uh, lots and lots of other authors. And so, and I wrote a whole really bad senior thesis paper about uh, individualized education. It was about the Sudbury Valley School model. And and so actually getting to meet these teens was was eye-opening. And, and that's when I kind of put two and two together. And I said, uh, you know what? I can take these teens on cool international ventures and get paid to do it. And that means I get to keep traveling to places I want to visit myself also. So there was a lot of, of you know, personal selfish investment in this. Um, yeah, so I think that's the origins of it. And the way that I've structured my unschooled ventures trips, um, you know, safety has always been my number one priority. I worked at a summer camp where risk management was like a crazy high level of it. And so there's always, you know, a structure in place. There's always ways if there's an emergency for kids to get in touch with trip leaders. But beyond that, you know, we offer a lot of freedom like way more freedom than any teenager teenager is going to get in an international adventure program. Um, so I will set up the structure. You know, we're going to go to Argentina for six weeks. We'll be doing this for the first two weeks and this for the next two weeks. And so all the bus tickets are purchased and, and the itinerary is set. But within each day, the kids get a lot of freedom to go essentially wander off and, and do what they want as long as they're in small groups and have cell phones and can contact us, basic stuff. And so that, that's me trying to offer the, the, the highly independent, unstructured part of travel, which I think is very, uh, you know, it's a direct parallel for self-directed learning um, to young people because I benef benefited from it and I wanted to share that. Can you think of a couple of really outstanding examples of things that have happened on your travels with students? Yeah, yeah. And I did a, a podcast about Unschool Adventures uh, last year with my friend Zen Zenith, and I, I shared a few of those. So I apologize if, if you heard that one, and, and there might be a repeat here. Um, so the first trip that we did, we went to Argentina, and uh, we did two weeks of Spanish classes and homestays in the beginning. So that was that was pretty high structure. But it's it, I think that's good to do when you're first getting into a foreign country. And then the middle two weeks were, uh, were student-designed travel. And so I said, listen, everyone, here's our budget. Uh, what are we going to do with it? And so I kind of facilitated a research process. And then we had a, uh, you know, essentially a consensus decision-making uh, process to figure out how we're going to spend this money and where we're going to go. And so this, this group, and this was 2008, they found a, a farm where we could volunteer on the outskirts of Buenos Aires. And it was run by Hare Krishnas. And, and I've never had any experience with Hare Krishnas. Mm -hmm. And we, so we go there and um, <laughs> there's so much uh, uh, that I could say about this farm. I'll just highlight two things. One, the, the kitchen had more flies in it than I had ever seen in any sort of you know, food preparation space. It was yeah. truly appalling. And the second thing was we learned some of the Hare Krishna songs because every night they would bust out a guitar and, and play around the campfire. It was really nice. And all the songs, you know, essentially involved Hare Krishna, Krishna Hare, Hare Hare, Rama Rama, Krishna Krishna. And I thought that was, that's great. These are songs that I can follow along to. <laughs> so this is something I would have never chosen, you know, on my own for to take a group to but but the the teens led me in that direction and it was a fun novel experience um and just one other quick story is when i took a group to new zealand in 2013 we were volunteering at um, at a woman's family farm uh she had a bunch of kids this, a bunch of acreage and it's actually not very far away from where i'm recording right now in cardrona on the south island and she had some old beat up cars uh, sitting around the property that she would just use to haul wood and other stuff. And they were, one of them was an old Range Rover uh, and it was a stick shift, but in New Zealand, you drive on the right, it, the, sorry, the, the driver's on the right side of the car. You, you drive on the left side of the road. 
And so you have to use the stick shift with your left hand instead of your right hand. And so this was a tricky card to get to, to use. And I was using it, using my very rudimentary, you know, manual transmission skills to haul stuff around her, her farm for her. And then one of the teens, like a, a 14 year old or 15 year old said like, Hey, could I try driving that? Huh. And I was like, have you ever driven before? She's like, no, you know, I'm, I'm taking driver's ed right now. And I was like, have you ever driven stick? And she said, no. And I said, well, let me ask. And so I asked the, the woman running the farm. She's like, yeah, just do it in the field. You know, you should be in the seat next to her. <laughs> so, you know, just be careful. And so essentially half of our, our group ended up getting their first lesson in driving stick shift in an old beat up Range Rover using their left hand. Uh, you know, so it was super challenging to just get it into first gear. And once they did get it into first gear, it was this, this, you know, shriek of joy. Uh, <laughs> and so I, and I was there in the, in the passenger seat and, um, and I love that. So these are the kind of things that, that I couldn't have predicted and, coming and, in from and, the outside. And, and that's what travel represents to me is, is these kinds of moments that you stumble into and you have to figure out what's going on in the middle of it. And yeah, you take basic safety precautions, but, but that's where the magic happens. It's not checking off every, you know, stupid art museum that you're supposed to see every tourist site that's boring and when they came back to the united states they just tore up a whole lot of transmissions doing it the opposite way anyway oh i'm, I'm sure they caused so much damage to <laughs> transmissions yeah and they couldn't do it with their right hand either I, i'm sure i i, I incapacitated them <laughs> in a, a, a so, major way so one one question i want to ask you is since your background was basically traditional and then you discovered all this stuff yeah. Uh, yeah. What was the de-schooling process like with you or, you know, how did that, how has that affected you? Well, it all happened in university or I'd say the bulk of it happened there. And I think I was, I was pretty privileged to be at a school, UC Berkeley, which had, you know, a history of democratic education and student representation. And I had some very unique opportunities there. Um, first of all, when I decided that, I, when I discovered all this alternative education stuff and I wanted to study it full time, I wanted to design a major in it. Um, there was a program called the individual major where I could essentially, you know, choose and anything that goes into my curriculum. I, I created my own course list and all I had to do is get two professors to rubber stamp my plan. And then I had to write a senior thesis paper and then it was, you're good to go. And I would graduate with a bachelor's from Berkeley that I, I got to chose the, the title of it. So um, there was that, there was the fact that there was this program called DECAL, Democratic Education at Cal, which is a student led um, course program where undergraduates can offer courses to other undergraduates and, and those, uh, the students can receive pass, no pass credit for those courses. And so I got to organize along with my friend, Nate Singer, a course called never taught to learn. And so this, we did this like a semester after I changed my major. And so I was immersed in all of this literature. And then I got to turn around and teach it to other undergraduates at Berkeley who are pretty sharp kids. And so, you know, that's the best way to learn something, right? Attempt to teach it. Um, and finally I was living in the, the student co-ops, which, you know, I, I guess I forgot how democratic my, my undergraduate days were, Jerry. Uh, so the, in the student co-op system, which is one of the largest in the U.S., um, I lived in a house with 125 people, and every week we would have a, a democratic decision-making meeting where it used Robert's Rules of Orders, and you know there'd be 90 people there at each meeting. And so that was this, this incredible education in itself of just how to organize a community. And so... I think it was it was all this um, this other stuff that was going on in addition to the reading and having the freedom to to do what I wanted that made my deschooling process more rapid and and, and easier. I, I think I still had some baggage coming out of college in terms of when I imagined my ideal alternative school, it was still organized around traditional academics, but like tweaked a little bit to make it a little bit nicer and friendlier. Um, it wasn't until I really got involved with the unschooling world when I 
uh, met Ken Danford and, and saw North Star, when I saw Village Home in Portland, you know, when I started really d dipping my fingers into the world beyond just the Sudbury Valley School, which was, which was my gateway drug, really. I, I love those books. I think I read almost all of the Sudbury Valley Press books. Um, yeah, I know. They have a lot of them, right? Yeah, they have a lot. Well, you know, it's interesting. My, I, I keep on, even though I've been doing this for so many years, I keep on running into things from my own uh, background that remind me that my instincts are still wrong about learning. <laughs> hmm. uh, for, hmm. for example, what's, what's an example? Yeah. Well, for example, uh, we helped to start a, uh, a school, uh, one of our school starters, a group of started a school in New Jersey, and they invited me to come over there and demonstrate democratic process. Uh, in this school, and so I said, "Okay, fine, you know." And I and I said I would come over and and do that. But uh, as I'm driving over there, I'm thinking, "Wait a second, the oldest kid in this school is five years old." <laughs> oh my God! I don't know if I'm going to be able to to do this. You yeah, know, I don't think yeah. I've ever done it with. I don't know if they can. I said I'm probably at least going to have to come up with the agenda for the meeting and so on. And so I go into the building and the first thing I hear is a kid screaming, mommy. And I'm thinking, oh boy, I don't know what's going to happen. Here. <laughs> and then and then finally they, they pull the kids around a table, round table, and 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 they're they're all, you know, three, two and a half, three, four, five years old. And, and I start to explain to them, I said, well, you know, uh, to have a democratic meeting, uh, you, you really do it for two different reasons. Uh, one is if you have a good idea for the school, uh, you know, then, um, you know, you can bring that up. And another thing is if, if you think there's some problem in the school, you can bring that, well, no sooner had I got those words out of my mouth, all the hands went up. And and they came up with all these ideas for agenda items. One of them said that he was concerned that people were going out in the cold when they were sick. And uh, that may not be a great idea, you see, going outside. Uh, and so they eventually discussed this and they came up with a proposal that if you have a cold, you can't go out in the cold. <laughs> and then there was another four-year-old girl who said, you know, she'd heard that there was a caffeine-like sub substance in chocolate and wondered if it was a good idea for kids to eat chocolate, you know, in the afternoon, you know. And so they discussed this for a while and decided that basically people could only eat chocolate in the morning. And so our entire uh, agenda was made. I didn't need to give them anything. Uh, we had this very good meeting. The whole process is actually videotaped, and you can actually find it on the Arrow website under member resources. Uh, and so, cool. so this is, you see, I was fighting against my instincts, which said, oh, that, that was going to be a problem, and it was no problem. So you mentioned the school starters course, and I know this is something that you're still running. It's it's you've been doing it for more than ten years, right? Yeah, and this is something that people can join online from anywhere. And when is the next one that you're offering? Well, we only offer it once a year, and that's starting uh, in September, and it goes to January. So this group is just finishing up now. We had about twenty five okay. people in it, but on the other hand. People can actually join it any time during the year and get access to the previous course uh, with all of its resources for much less than the actual price of going into the course. So there's something uh, called the consultation program, and you can, again, access that on our website, which is educationrevolution.org, and you would probably go to member schools and go to schools that help Arrow, Arrow help to start. And that's where you can find the school starters and, and that option. 
Uh, and we always have a few people that are doing that during the year. And then if people do take that, then they can actually get that amount of money off of the full course if they want to take it. So it's being offered really kind of all the time, although the main course is from September to, to January. <clears throat> so what I, what I think I want to do to finish this up is to talk about something which we both have noticed and, and think is, a, is a actually something that we need to deal with, and that is uh, the fact that there are all different types of alternatives, and they sometimes seem to be competing with each other rather than cooperating. And Arrow, of course, has had the thankless tax task of trying to organize them under one umbrella because <laughs> we feel like change is not going to take place in the education system unless all of the alternatives find their commonalities and learn how to work together toward a change toward learner-centered education. What do you think about this? Yeah, I'm totally on board with that. And I don't like it when I hear people from one alternative model kind of taking pot shots at, at others. You know, it's really easy for people who are in democratic free schools or these more radical models to, to scoff at like, oh, Montessori, Waldorf. It's like, yeah, I think Waldorf is pretty weird too, but like, I'm glad that Steiner schools exist. And and to the, you know, how do they harm anyone else? Um, yes, maybe if the, the a Waldorf school moves into the neighborhood where your democratic free school is, then maybe it'll siphon some kids away. But if that's a better place for those kids, that is what we're going for here. That is a net societal benefit. And so, like, yeah, it's great that there's different models, and it's it's totally good to to critique other people's approaches and say like they're too democratic or you know they're they're too liberatory uh, or they're not you know they're not radical enough. Like that's that's how we progress our ideas. But but I uh, I, I agree with you. I think that that we're all in this together in terms of just promoting a more learner centered and, and a more humanistic vision of education. And so fundamentally we should support each other and 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 only say critical or negative things when it's uh you know absolutely necessary not to just you know try to promote our own little uh, our our agendas, our little pet projects. And, and um, I think it's important that all the different alternatives try to learn from each other because there are yeah. very positive things in each of them. And I, the more we do that, I feel like the better all of our education is going to be. I agree. And this is where Arrow, I think, has served a very unique role. And, you know, I've known about uh, Arrow and you and the website for a long time. I've pointed so many people towards the map that you have of alternatives across the globe because it is still by far the best and most comprehensive map if you just want to find any sort of alternative school or, you know, homeschooling support group or, or you know, anything out here, um, Arrow is the place to do it. And also the, the job board that you have is, is the best place to find job openings at alternative schools. And, and so the fact that Arrow has had such a wide definition of alternative, I think, has really, um, has really served to, to make everyone look at all the possible alternatives, not just their little favorites. Yeah, and anybody so who, thank who, you, Jerry. Any, anybody who becomes an Arrow member actually gets to post free uh, job ads. Uh, and so I, I agree with you uh, in your assessment about this. And I think it's very important that, you know, all different types of alternatives uh, try to learn from each other, support each other. Uh, and I feel like that is probably a good way for us all to, to move forward. So uh, I think maybe on that note, we can try to finish up. What do you think? Yeah. Can I ask you one quick follow-up question? Sure. This might okay, take so, us another hour, though, but go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. Just a few minutes, hopefully. So uh, Peter Gray and a lot of other great people have started the Alliance for Self-Directed Education recently, and they are also trying to cast a, a pretty wide net, although it's not as wide as Arrow's net. Their definition of self-directed education essentially means, you know, places where kids aren't forced to do almost anything aside from, you know, play by the rules. And so a Montessori school would not fall under their definition of self-directed. And um, yeah, I'm just wondering if you have any impression of, 
of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. If you're a supporter of them, if if you feel like you and excuse me, they and, and Arrow have have highly aligned missions, or if there are some significant differences that are worth pointing out. Well, um, actually, <laughs> uh, we've had Peter Gray as keynoter for several Arrow conferences. And when we first had him, I think people didn't really know much about him. And now, of course, he's very much in demand. Uh, oh, he's a rock star. And and so uh, so uh, we've you know been we we, we in, they are going to have a presence at the Aero Conference this year, and several people will actually be doing a whole theme, uh, you know, based on their approach. In terms of Peter Gray himself, well, I thought that I had first met him uh, and his son at a conference in 1986 or so in Pennsylvania. But then subsequently, I realized that something else, which was really quite stunning to me, and I should maybe I should have remembered it, but he pointed out to me that, well, when I was at Goddard College, I worked on a program that eventually led to the establishment of two different schools. Um, and one of them, I had a couple of teachers involved with the original meetings that I had recruited to this process when I was doing my thesis at Goddard, which was called On the Starting of a School. And that was his mother. (laughs) Huh. Wow. And so he knew about me back then, which would have been around 1965, (laughs) 64, 65. All right. So you go back a ways. So so we do go back a ways. And I I brought that up when he was at our conference last year. And uh, so we think that they're doing very nice work and that it's complementary to what Arrow does. Yeah. Great. I think that's a great place to end it, Jerry. Okay. Well, it's been great talking to you, Blake, and and I think this has been fun. And, uh, you know, we could just go on for another three or four hours, but I think that's enough. (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks a lot.